You can turn to Matthew 23 if you have a Bible with us. Today we are finishing our Bad Religion series that we've been in for a few weeks now. We, and today we finish up by looking at the last of the seven woes that Jesus proclaimed to the religious leaders of his day. And that's a woe, W-O-E as in, whoa, something's not good, not like, whoa, uh, Bill and Ted's Act Adventure or anything like that. Hey, by the way, next week, you do not want to miss our very special speaker, none other than the wisest woman I've ever known, not to mention the bravest and the kindest, and that is Melissa Hale. She's going to be preaching to us next week. Bring it, bring it. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 23, we're starting verse 29 today. Woe to you, Jesus says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. Okay, so what's Jesus talking about here? A little bit, you know, we like to give you some context to understand what's going on. Interesting thing was happening. There was a popular movement in Jerusalem at the time Jesus is saying this very thing, where lots of tombs were being built to honor historical religious figures. Much like today, we might build statues, you know, and you go places, you might see George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr. or something like that, or built in a park or whatnot. Uh, in, in the Jewish days, they, of course, according to the Torah, were not allowed to build sculptures of people. That was considered idolatry. So you didn't build a sculpture of somebody, so what they would do is build tombs. And then they would decorate them, and they would have these even special days during the year where they would go and, you know, honor the, the, the figure, and they would decorate the tomb and things like that. You know, kind of like you've heard of like uh, Dia de los Muertos, you know, in Mexico, or the Day of the Dead or something like that, where they honor ancestors or things like that. So it's kind of that idea. So they would go and build these tombs, honor them, and the, the, they were usually prophets, the prophets. And these were the prophets who uh, had often come and spoken a word but had been rejected by the country. And sometimes these prophets were even put to death for speaking out against the evil direction that the country had been going to at the time. So Jesus says, uh, you build these tombs of prophets, you decorate them, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so, for the Pharisees, building these tombs uh, was also their way of declaring, we are morally and spiritually superior to our ancestors. We're not like them. Those guys who rejected and murdered the prophets, we would not have done that. Jesus goes on in verse 31, he says, Thus, you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. So Jesus is, uh, he's saying, you guys think you're so like superior to your ancestors, but you're actually worse. Nothing's really changed. Um, okay. Now, in this series, we've spent a lot of time looking at the Pharisees, kind of talking about who they are. And Jesus calls them hypocrites time after time. But notice here, Jesus mentions the prophets. And so what we want to do today uh, in the few minutes we have here, number one, we want to ask when Jesus mentions the prophets, who is he referring to? And we'll look at an example there. And then number two, what did the ancestors of these Pharisees do that was so bad? Uh, number three, what is Jesus accusing these guys now of? And then like step 11, we'll get to how does this uh, matter to us? What does this mean for us? Because that's important. So hold your place there and in Matthew, and we're going to turn back in the Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 20. We're going to choose one of these 
famous prophets in uh, Jeremiah to give you an idea of who Jesus is talking about and what the prophet's role is. So, Jeremiah 20, we're going to start in verse 9. And notice here, Jeremiah has this message to give to the people of Israel. But if, first Jeremiah says this, but if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire. It is a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. First thing to understand about the prophet is the prophet is someone who delivers a word from God to the people of God, okay? He, very rarely, if ever, I can only think of like one or two times it was the exception to the case, but very rarely did the prophets ever bother with folks outside of Israel to the pagan nations or things like that. His words are usually directed at people already claiming to be God's people, right? So the prophet isn't the one that goes and like yells at sinners. He's yelling to saints, okay? That's the prophet. But the prophet here, he's telling us he's on a mission, right? And for him, the word from God is like a fire in his bones. He's like, even if I tried to keep this in, I'm exhausted. I couldn't do it. I'm exhausted trying to hold it back, this message that God's given me for you. So what are the kind of things that he's referring to here? Let's go back a couple of chapters to chapter 7. We'll look at chapter 7. The thing about the prophet that we got to understand is the prophet, he cannot comprehend just going through the motions, right? The prophet does not understand living with complacency. Uh, he can't imagine why anybody wouldn't live with just incredible passion, gusto, devotion uh, to, to the living God. He just can't track with that. Uh, I mean, the prophet's like, look, this is God's word, right? It's like a fire in my bones and even I can't hold it in. So Jeremiah says in, in verse 2, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. That's what God tells Jeremiah uh, to do. And here's what he's supposed to say. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It's funny. The right uh, he's, he's kind of mocking people who kind of, uh, that they repeat this sort of religious uh, mantra, like an incantation that's going to protect them to just say this over and over and over. He says, verse 5, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly. So the word of the prophet is, he's always about being fair with each other. Um, about showing justice and mercy. We talked a lot about that last week um, in our home life groups. He says, if you do not oppress the foreigner, that's the immigrant, uh, the fatherless or the orphan, we would say, if you do not oppress the widow, we could say single moms, right? And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land that I, give your, that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But how does he end it? He says, but look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So what is it the prophet tells the people? He's telling them reform. Reform, that's the language used in this passage here. Reform your ways. He's saying, do you think your temple and your, your religious services give you a pass at doing the right thing? Do you think your songs, your rituals, your festivals mean you don't have to show justice and mercy? 
You think you can just come in and say, this is the temple. This is the temple. We're the special people of God. And somehow that gets you off the hook from doing the right thing toward your fellow man. So the prophet goes to God's people. He's called to the people of God and says, you aren't acting like God's people. Repent. Change. Reform is the word he uses here. Notice in chapter 8, sometimes the, the word reform is translated with a different word in verse 4. He says, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? When people turn away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. There's that word return. Let's look over at chapter 22. Uh, the prophets, by the way, are just really cool dudes. They're interesting sorts of people. Um, they use metaphor. They use images. They use, uh, sometimes they were funny. Sometimes they were really sarcastic. Uh, sometimes they were very calm and loving, but they would use like poetry. Sometimes these diatribes and rants. Uh, and they, uh, one prophet like would rip his clothes to shreds to make a point. Sometimes they would employ like performance art. One prophet laid in the road for just days to, to make a point. Um, they, he just laid there. One prophet shaved his head. One prophet married a prostitute in order to make a point. Uh, they would go for days without bathing. Uh, they were like the original slam poets. They just like, you know, wanted to make this amazing point. They, they were kind of like rock stars today. They were amazingly listen, uh, amazing to listen to, but you wouldn't want them like spending the night in your guest room um, just because you never knew what they were going to do. Um, but whatever it took to get people's attention, the prophets would do. So here, uh, let's see, where are we in, in chapter 22? The prophet, he's poking his finger uh, at those in authority. He says, woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his subjects work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it and panels it with cedar and decorates it in red. So let's pause for a second. One of the, another thing the prophets did is speak truth to power. They would speak truth to the most powerful people in the land. The prophet was not intimidated by whoever was in office, whoever was the king. Um, they seemed to enjoy a special courage that like nobody else would dare to have to just go and tell the king what needed to be said. And sometimes the king would appreciate it and sometimes the king uh, would want to kill the messenger. Um, so here's Jeremiah with something in his belly. He's got to get it out, man. His fire in his bones and he's talking to the king. Now remember, the king back then is not like operating under any kind of constitution. There's no check of powers here. The king has at his disposal um, soldiers, chariots, horses, swords, spears, dungeons, fighter jets, tanks, anything he wants, the king has right there. This is the king. And Jeremiah charges in, in his dirty bathrobe and shaved head, and he says, you build your palace on the backs of slaves. So prophets, number one, do not understand complacency, uh, mediocrity, going through the motions. That's just not them at all. They don't get it. Number two, prophets go to the people of God and they say, what do you think you're doing? You got to reform. You're not acting like the people of God. Number three, prophets speak truth to power. They're unintimidated by the trappings of office. And they're, they're not afraid to say, you're using your power wrongly for your own wealth while other people are starving, and that is not right. So these are the original revolutionaries, these guys. Come at me with your chariots and your spears, the prophet would say. I've got a word from God in my belly, and it's like a fire in my bones, and i got to get it out. Do you like the prophets, by the way? 
They're pretty cool. I like the prophets. Uh, one more example. Notice this one in, in verse 15. It's just awesome. He says, uh, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? So cedar back then was the most expensive wood material that you could make your palace with. And so he's saying, do you think more cedar like makes you more legit? He's basically, it's kind of a taunt here. It's almost a taunt. He goes right to the heart of power here. He's saying, your heart king has become corrupted. And then this line, which I imagine when he says this, like the king's like left eye might be twitching a little bit. Do you remember the scene from uh, Return of the Jedi when Jabba the Hutt you know, he's got a button that he can press and the trap doors open in front of his throne and the person falls down to be devoured by the rancor. Any other nerds in the house besides me? Thank you, my people. Okay, I've raised you well. Thank you. Okay, so I'm picturing this king right here wishes he had one of these. Just like, mm, I wish I could just make this prophet go away. He says, did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just and so all went well with him. He defended uh, the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? So Jeremiah says to this king who's building his palace using slaves. Uh, by the way, the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, from what? Slavery. And told, be my people in the world. Show the world what God is really like. You know, you're going to show the world. You're going to be like these different kind of people. And what do they turn around and do within like a couple hundred years? They're using slaves. Um, he, says, he says, your father had enough to eat, and that was all he needed. Do you know what he did? Do you know what your father did with his time? Instead of building palaces, he defended the less fortunate, and he knew God. And so that's the prophets. This is, just to give you an idea, that's the prophets. So which begs the question, how did the people receive the word of the prophets? Let's look over at Jeremiah chapter 26. Now, interesting thing would happen. So the kings are in charge. They're the ones with the armies and the tanks and everything. And they would be supported by the religious establishment. Um, they would have their own religious establishment. And that religious establishment, the temple, would have their own prophets. Those are the prophets. Their job was to speak whatever the king wanted to hear. Uh, they would basically tell the king he was doing a great job. Just keep doing what you're doing, king. You're amazing. So these are the prophets. The next passage is talking about here. Where are we? 26. Uh, verse 10 says, When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went up from the royal palace to the house of the Lord and took their places at the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. That's the temple. Then the priests and prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against the city. You've heard it with your own ears. <laughs> right? What's the response from the people? Jeremiah should what? Die, basically. This guy is speaking against our precious city. How unpatriotic can you get? He has uttered condemnation against our institutions, our way of life. We can't have this. You heard it. King, you're going to let this guy live, right? And so the true prophets of God, the true prophets of God generally, generally went after uh, two things, the condition of the heart of the people and the kings and the injustice they saw towards people who were suffering. And the response of the people here is, we don't want to hear this. Our system works. Everything is good. We're comfortable. Thank you very much. Your words make us uncomfortable right? Our religion works for us. Do not tell us to change. We want you dead. So when we get to Jesus' day, not much 
has actually changed, it turns out, in the, in the heart of the religious leaders. In Matthew 12, there's a scene where uh, Jesus is in a, gets in an argument with the Pharisees because he's broken one of their laws of the Sabbath. Uh, he has dared to do something that is not supposed to be done on Shabbat. And how did he break the law? He healed a guy. Heaven forbid. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to, what's your Bible say? Destroy him. Okay. Destroy him. So in the pronouncement of woe in Matthew 23, Jesus says, you know what your problem is? You decorate Jeremiah's tomb and you say, man, we would never do what our ancestors did in killing the prophets sent by God. We've changed. Our hearts would be humble. Our eyes would be open. But Jesus sees right past their words, all their empty gestures, and he basically says, you say you wouldn't have killed Jeremiah, but you're plotting to kill me right now, right? He knows what's going on. So you really are children of your murderous fathers. You guys haven't changed at all. You're like, we do it differently. But in reality, you are just like your parents. And it got really quiet around the dinner table, right? You can just picture the, all the waiters there going like, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and what Jesus is showing us about people, about us, remember, we're, we, we want, we're, we're letting him speak to us. We're letting Jesus speak to us, Right? What Jesus shows us is that something very dangerous happens when people say, I would never do that. I would never have done that. Watch out. So let's bring this a little closer to home, which we always want to do. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew 13, just a couple of pages there. Matthew 13. We're, we're, we're going to get set in a few minutes to take communion today together. Um, now, there's one text in the Bible that says that uh, to examine yourself before you take communion. So we want to give ourselves an opportunity today before we do this to do just that. We want to examine ourselves, which means to look deep inside. One of the most important truths of the universe is that the gospel, the cross, begins with our own inner healing, each one of us, our escape and rescue from sin our salvation being worked out with the help of the Holy Spirit. It, it, and it starts in the very depths of our being. The kingdom spreads from heart to heart, right? And, and the impulse here that Jesus is getting at is to be very careful. Be very careful when that gut instinct arises within you that says, well, I would never do that. I would never do that. Because that was the Pharisees' problem. Because they were ultimately blind to the fact of their own weakness, and how many Christians, how many preachers have fallen, right? We see them in the news, right? How many devoted, loving spouses, how many uh, God-fearing accountants, how many good folks with a few extra prescription pills laying around more than they need had said, I would never do that. That's not me. I would never be tempted in that area. Only to have everything 
blow up around them and leave them saying, how did I wind up here? How, how, is the, how did I get here? So we think we're, we're different. Somehow we're, we're more righteous, more pious than our barbaric ancestors. And Jesus says, be careful about saying I would never. I, I, I just saw a study. I wasn't going to, I was debating with this. I just saw a study that had a poll that was issued. You know, there's all kinds of, if, unless you've been living under a rock, you know uh, this time we live in right now is really divisive, right? Crazy era in our country right now. So much divisiveness, so much antagonism and strife, different groups and everybody hating and hating. And there was this study that was just done, a poll of, of uh, do you, and the question was posed, I wish I could remember exactly how it was posed, but it was something like, do you, would you consider violence a viable option to achieve your political goals right now? Is violence uh, an acceptable option to achieve your political goals? And they asked a lot of different people, a lot of different segments. Do you know what the number one segment, the highest ranking segment of society to say yes, violence is acceptable to achieve our political goals was? White evangelicals. And that's why I stay awake at night, right? White evangelicals, not leftists, not liberals, not conservatives, not Black Lives Matter, not hunters or vegans or <laughs> Catholics or Lutherans, white evangelicals. Which is why, by the way, I'm going off script here, which is why we do what we do. Why we keep harping on the kingdom of God. Why we keep talking to you about Jesus. Why we keep telling you about acting like Jesus. Because we are Christians. We are to walk in his steps. We are to walk in the dust of his footprints. And follow him and look like him and talk like him. And work like him. And speak like him. And live like him. And be just like the one who gave up literally all the power. He had all the power and privilege. And he laid it down to come be a servant for all so that all would be saved. And we walk in his footsteps, that's what we claim. That's what we claim. We claim we would never be like our barbaric ancestors. Don't say that. Never say I would never. Hallelujah, okay, I'm back on. That's... No, not a wise thing to talk about on pastor appreciation. I don't need you all to like me today. I love you though. So I invite us all, before we get to communion, I invite us to do a gut check this morning. Let's, let's look at a few, I want to look at a few passages from the Gospels. Many of these are going to be familiar to you. I just want to look at these and let's ask the question, how do I read this? When we read this, what is my immediate reaction? How do I automatically assume I appear in this story? Who do I think I am in this story? What's the, and what's maybe the wiser, more humble approach? Uh, Matthew 13, you can go over there. Matthew 13, Jesus is telling a parable about the four kinds of seed. And if you remember that, like some of the seed falls in good ground, and there's bad ground, and there's like the birds come and eat some of the seed. And he, he's explaining the parable because as usual, he tells it and the followers are kind of like, huh? And so he's explaining it. And he's talking about the third kind of soil. And he says in verse 22, as for the seed sown among thorns, 
This is the one who hears the word. So they've heard the word. They, they received this fresh word of God. But the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word and it yields nothing. But the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word. Okay, so Jesus is saying here, here's what Jesus is saying. This is what happens in some people as they hear about this new kingdom of Christ, right? The good news message of Jesus, they hear it and for them it is like water in the desert. They're like, yes, I need that. It captivates them. They hear the word. They enter into the kingdom of God. They're born from above. They come forward. They repent. They become a Christian. They invite Jesus in their heart. They repeat the prayer. They join the team. They get a Jesus bumper sticker on the back of their car or whatever it is. They have this profound moment. Yeah, I'm in. And, and, and they love and they love it in this experience with the truth of Jesus. And they say, I'm in. But remember, this seed is meant to be shared with other people, right? Seed is shared. And so what it, that's what it means to be a disciple is to be a disciple is, is one who, who you're a disciple and you make more disciples. Who, who make more disciples? Who make more disciples? But what happens? He says two things happen. Number one, the cares of this world. Cares of this world. That's, that's worry. That's distractions. Fears. And number two, he says, the lure of wealth choke out the word. The lure of wealth, that, that's not just money. It's not just, I, I need more money. It's, it's, it's power, right? It's privilege. It's the lure of all those things and the fear of losing those things. The lure of wealth. So these are people, they met Christ. Their whole life was altered. They, they were, they were going to go out and change the world. But the worries of this life started to choke it out. And the lure of wealth, they fell under that old illusion. If I, just have, if I just have a little more, if I could just get this thing, then, then I could, I'll be complete and I'll be at peace and I'll be joyful. And then I can like start doing other things. So they had this profound experience. Maybe it lasted a week. Maybe it lasted a month or 10 years, however long it lasted. But now it's being choked out. And so they aren't sharing their faith. They aren't passionate about what God is passionate about. They wake up, they go to work, they eat their meals, they watch TV, they go to sleep, climb out of bed, repeat, right? Day after day. And their old passion for the kingdom of Christ, whatever passion began there, it's been displaced by a preoccupation with like lesser dramas around them. And that's what they're passionate about. They're caught in a, in a boring, lifeless pattern that isn't what they know deep in their bones is meant for them. This, it's not the revolutionary life Jesus promised them. And I would argue what Jesus is telling us is that when we read a passage like this about the Pharisees and we say, I would never be like that. I would never be like that third soil or do that or fall into sin or temptation. Let the, thro the, the thorns choke out my zeal. I would never respond to God's rebuke like they did. Jesus is saying, be careful. Catch yourself. Look deep and say, are there some thorns in my soil? Have I been choked by worries and anxieties and all the stuff in the world? Jesus says it's really simple. Later, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And I'll take care of all the rest of you. Right? So we, as we head toward communion, examine yourself and say, is there any sense where I might be tempted to say I would never, that could never be me, but maybe it is. Let's look at a second one over in Mark chapter 9. 
What's really great is that none of these things that Jesus is saying is very painful or uncomfortable to us today. Amen? Thank the Lord. Um, That was sarcastic. Because Jesus is traveling through Galilee in this story. He's traveling with his disciples, and they're stopping at a home uh, to rest. He says in verse 33, Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? Busted. The disciples are like, oh, did he hear us talking? No, he couldn't. He was way up there. No. But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. They are so busted. Because these guys are the chosen ones. Like, literally, he chose them. There's, you know, there's 12 of them. The insi- they're the insiders with all the special access and to the man himself. They're hearing him, the Prince of Peace, you know, the Son of God in the flesh, talking the first will be last and the last first. I came to serve, not to be served. Uh, you know, while they're, they're learning from the master about compassion and selflessness and servant-heartedness, they're watching Jesus, you know, that this is coming from the Son of God and he's being this way and they're arguing about which of them was the biggest deal. Oh, Jesus got to be like, oh, dear God. There's another place where they'd leave a city where they were kind of treated impolitely and they're like, so we can call down fire from heaven? Can we do that? And Jesus is like, oh, Dios mío. Right? These are... So instead of you and I here today saying, what a bunch of idiots. Uh, we would totally not be arguing about that, right? Especially not in the presence of Jesus. I would be so caught up in the spirit. Mm, I'm going to walk around with Jesus. I would just be so awesomely spiritual. Uh, um, there's just no way. There's no way. Well, maybe we should pause because this passage cuts right to the core of humanity. It's talking about what's at the core of all of us, which is ego. We all got one of those. Ego. Wanting to be adored wanting to be noticed, our accomplishments recognized, right? Our sacrifices seen and acknowledged by other people. It doesn't make you evil, it just makes you human, right? You got an ego. It's what happens. But when, when, when our ambition, which can be a beautiful driving force, by the way, ambition can be a great thing. Uh, but when that ambition turns selfish, when it turns sour and destructive, Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? And uh, actually, we were arguing about which of us is the greatest, which of us is the biggest deal, which church is the best one around here, which tribe, which party is the one that has it all together, which religious team is the right one. And you just picture Jesus going, you, have you guys totally missed the point? So rather than us looking at these disciples and saying, never me, never me, it's important that we ask, how am I still, after all this time, still essentially being driven by my ego, my need to be first, my need to be best or or most admired? One last example I want to look at Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 10. In this one, you really see how... uh, you start to see how Jesus has no problem poking at the inner Pharisee in all of us. He says this in verse 30. A lot of you will recognize this parable. He, he says, he says, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers 
who stripped him, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Hmm, hmm. So likewise, a Levite, a Levite back then would be the, a member of uh, kind of the privileged religious class was the Levites. When he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan in that day would have been a religious and ethnic minority. Uh, they were much looked down on by the real Jews. A Samaritan was traveling. He came near him and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. You know the rest of that story. Now, how often do we read this and we say, I would never be like that priest. There's no way. If I see a need, I would never just keep on walking. Uh, uh, by the way, it's interesting. I was reading this little account, historical account of the roads back then. Uh, when we talk, they talk about um, passing by in this passage, we're only talking about a matter of a couple feet. Uh, the ancient Israelite highway department was not making big wide shoulders on their highways. This is a tiny little trail, basically. And so passing by means the man was right there or he was right here. Uh, and so you're pretty much stepping over him. And uh, so we would be like, Scott, I would never step over somebody hurting and keep going. It, perhaps if we have that impulse, we need to catch ourselves. Why? Because... Being able to ask ourselves, is there anything of that in me? It's, that's not meant to just beat you up and make you feel all condemned and beat up. No, no, no. That is actually the mark of true holiness, which we talked about last week. Holiness. Holiness leads to more, not less, humility. Holiness leads to more humility. This is, holiness is that form of humility that leads us to pray like Jesus taught us when he said, God, lead me not into temptation. That's humility that has to pray that, right? Otherwise, you're like, never me. That would never be me. No, we can actually pray, God, lead me not into temptation, right? It's pride that says, I would never because I would never, when you think about it, it's just really another way of saying, there's just something about me that is better than other people. Right? Humility. Humility is the awareness to ask, not, I would never, but God, would I? Not, I would never, but God, help me to never. That is an appropriate prayer. That is the prayer of a holy man and a holy woman. God, help me to never. It's humility that keeps us from ruin, right? Every one of those tragic cases you see on the news of some famous person, famous pastor, or famous Christian figure who falls into sin, it's because they said, I would never. I guarantee it. So, my friends, this morning, is there anything you're dealing with where the worries of this life have choked out the fresh word of God? Is there any, any way that the lure of wealth has you chasing things that are, are going to lead you nowhere? Is there any way that the ego has gotten in the way of you serving? Gotten you hung up on, on getting noticed, getting praised? And Jesus would say to us, you're serving me. That's enough. You are serving Christ the King. And he notices all. And that's enough. That's the reward. 
Is there any suffering, anybody hurting around you, and you've been stepping over, you've been passing by, all while reading this and saying, that bad old priest, that bad old Levite, I would never do that. But the truth is we do, and so we need to repent, to reform. That's the call of God. We need to reform. And so our understanding is that uh, the way that God is healing the world is through the gift of his son Jesus, his body broken, his blood poured out so that we could have life. And so we, we gather together as followers of Christ on days like today as a way of remembering and reflecting and realigning ourselves. And we take this, this bread and this cup, we do it together. We do it in community with each other because it's a way of signifying that, that it's Christ who brings us together. We are in unity. We, we walk in unity, not uniformity, not uniformity, but in unity because it's Christ we have in common. Christ is what we have in common, and that is all we need to walk in unity. So if you have your, your elements there, you can be getting them ready. The little juice comes off there. And if you're watching by live stream with us right now, or you're listening um, to the podcast, you can do this at home right there where you are and uh, just grab you some a bread or cracker or something and some juice and uh, get ready to take this with us. We want this to be a time uh, where we stop and we quiet our, our raging minds. We invite God to speak to us, that prophetic word, speak to us, heal us, pour himself into our wounds, uh, into our brokenness so that we can receive the life that God promises. So let's pray. If you'll bow your heads with me, let's pray and, and we'll take the elements together when we're finished. Heavenly Father, dear God, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I thank you, Lord God. We don't want to be the kind of people, Lord, that, that say we would never do that when we're guilty of things all the time. God, we don't want to continue in, in our cycles of complacency or being hard-hearted. We want to break those cycles, Lord. God, we want to be so soft and open in our hearts that whatever word you're sending to us and through us, whoever it comes through, Father God, we want to be open to that word, Father God. We don't want to discount anything you might be trying to get our attention about. And God, we don't want to miss any truth that comes to us or dismiss it because the system works for us because we're so comfortable and we're isolated. We have so much and we end up missing a better life, Lord God. God, for all the ways in which our lives have become too complicated and too stressed out and too anxious, for all the ways we've missed the simple, compelling call of the kingdom of God, we repent, Lord. We repent. We ask for reformation. We want to chart a new course, Lord God, but we can only do this through your guidance, through your strength. And so we, we come to this this bread and this cup in need of reassurance that you have truly nailed all of our sins to the cross. You are truly our Lord redeeming us even now. You've come not just to save sinners but save Christians. We bring ourselves and our brokenness to you and we exchange it for your wholeness, for new creation 
And we do this, Lord, in remembrance of you. We do this, Lord God, in full knowledge that we are image bearers of your grace to the world around us. And so we pray all of this in the strong, healing name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let's take it. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for new creation, for second chances, for reset buttons. We thank you, Father, for that right now. Can we just give him a praise right now, a praise offering? We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. It's new every day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If our prayer partners would come down front, if there's anything in the world that we can pray with you about, if you need something going, something going on in your life, maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a financial issue, a relational issue, whatever it is, we invite you to come down forward here and let these guys pray with you. It's not the same when we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're here today and you'd like to give an offering, uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that. We have offering boxes off to the side here. You can give an offering electronically. Uh, a lot of different ways to do that. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me today? Let me offer you a benediction. Today on the, uh, the Christian calendar, it's Christ is King Sunday. I just think, oh, that is so fitting. Christ is King. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord God, for being our King. And now, my brothers and sisters, may you hear clearly the prophetic word of the Lord God as he speaks to you this week, as he moves you to reform, to repent, to reconcile, to return. And that voice may challenge you, it may shake you, it may rattle you a little bit, but it's shaking you to a better way of living. Amen? Amen. And may you never say, I would never, but may you live with such humility so that Jesus Christ can be at work in you and through you for this world around us who needs him so desperately. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.